Hello and welcome back to the Analytive Podcast. Today on the podcast, I have Jim Schlexer, the CEO of The CEO Project. Jim helps leaders grow companies. Before he started The CEO Project, a firm that mentors fast-growing CEOs, he ran a technology business valued at $1.6 billion. He has done business in 41 different countries. Jim has a regular column on entrepreneurial growth issues at Inc.com. He has spent over 10,000 hours speaking with and interviewing CEOs. He recently published the best-selling book, Great CEOs Are Lazy, which I get to ask him about a little bit in this interview. He is an engineer, an avid soccer player, a certified sommelier, and recently climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We talk a lot in this episode about finding and addressing the limits to growth within your business. This episode is worth more than some of the <laughs> MBA classes I paid for, so I would pay attention. This is a good one also to grab a notebook and take some notes. I'm telling you, the stuff in here is really, really good. Uh, Jim kind of got deep into the weeds um, with some of the coaching stuff that he does. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jim Schlexer. Jim, thank you so much for making some time to come on the Analytic Podcast today. I am so excited to talk to you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Tyler. Thanks for the time. Yeah. So for people who don't know, can you, uh, we did your bio in the intro, but can you give a little bit of background on who uh, Jim is? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, I, uh, you know, I've run companies my entire life, really from 29 years old. Um, I had a boss that made a tragic mistake and put me in charge of a, a growth division at 29 years old, didn't know what the heck I was doing. And um, through who knows what, we grew actually really well as I made a bajillion mistakes, but I really loved it and um, went on to run a bunch of different companies. And now what I do, the primary thing I do is I run a, a business called the uh, CEO Project, and we help CEOs with their growth challenges. And we've got about 125 CEOs that we work with around the country. Yeah. So let's dive into that. When you say growth challenges, are these like company growth, personal growth, both and? What does that mean? Yeah. You know, and you know, this as a founder, it's really hard to separate my personal from my company. You know, when if, if, if I've got an issue, the company's got an issue. If the company's got an issue, I've got an issue. Having said that, um, you know, we, we really focus on growth because we have this idea that in any system you can name, there is a point of constraint. And um, what really good CEOs do differently is they identify that point of constraint and they open it up. So the simple example is a garden hose. A garden hose, I'm supposed to get water out the end. Think of water as profit or revenues or whatever I'm after, right? As you're watering, there's a kink that shows up in the hose. Well, I can do work anywhere on that hose, but the only productive work I can do is find the kink and open it up. Hmm. Same exact thing's true in your business. Somewhere in your business, there's a kink in the hose that stops you from achieving the revenue you want, the profit you want, the number of clients that you want to serve. And it generally sits in one of four areas, the business model, the talent, the processes and systems you're using, or here's where it's personal, how you perform as a CEO. And so they're linked, you know, um, they're really linked together, but we help people through those, you know, friction points, the rough spots as you continue to grow the business, as they identify and open up those points of constraint. Yeah. So what the CEO project, what is it? I mean, is this Jim helping people? Do you, is this a group where you put folks in that they get to help people? Like, what does the format look like for that? 
Yep. Uh, so the, the model is uh, CEO peer groups. So we build CEO peer groups generally for larger companies. Our sort of unique position in the market is above 20 million, up to 2 billion, 2.5 billion are our largest clients. Most of the people that do CEO peer groups go down market below $20 million. So we run a harder model for a whole bunch of reasons I'll get into, but it's focused on larger companies. So if you're a larger company CEO and you don't have the infrastructure around you to talk out issues or just brainstorm on stuff, we provide that for people. Curated groups, the companies that you're with are like size, like complexity. So if you're running a $200 million company, you're with other $200 million companies, non-competitive. But I always say that you know breakthrough thinking comes from outside your industry, not inside your industry. So spending time with people that aren't like you is actually really where the new ideas are going to come from. If I go to, I remember talking to a guy who was in the automotive industry. <clears throat> he said, you know, we get together, all us automotive, you know, distributor companies, and we talk it all out. Da, da, da. I'm like, really? So let me get this straight. 10 middle-aged white guys whose dad started the business, who've been in the automotive business their entire lives are going to get together and you're going to come up with new ideas. Somehow... <laughs> I don't see that happening. But if you were the diverse group of people, both in thinking and background and so forth, that's where the ideas come from. So that's what we generate for them. Um, and of course, all of this is moderated and run by our advisors. Now, they are also all former CEOs. So if you're running a $200 million company, the person advising you has run a company that size or bigger. And that's a big deal in terms of getting the results. So it's that CEO peer group with like people like you. Mm -hmm. and a really skilled facilitator who also works with you in between the meetings. And that's the model. One-on-one -on -one plus peer group drives performance. Gotcha. So you, you listed those four big things, right? Business model, talent, processes, and systems. Can we dive a little bit into each of those? And I guess what you sort of mean by that, I think some of them are fairly self-explanatory, but if you're running a $200 million company, um, changing the business model, as an example, let's take that one first, might be a, a massive change right? You're not just being like, yeah, you know, it's not as simple as hiring someone. So can you dive into what that might look like for a company yeah, so, or and, and how you coach that? Business model is probably the most powerful one. Um, I tell people if you probably can't spend too much time on business model. If you have a great business model, you can grow much more effectively. You can make more money and it's easier. Um, I tell people I'm, I'm not smart enough and I don't work hard enough to make money in a coal mine. It's too hard a business, right? But there are other businesses where it's not as hard. So what are the elements of a better business? Number one, gold standard, the most important thing, recurring revenue. You have a high proportion of recurring revenue in your business. It's easier to grow. It's easier to predict. You sleep better at night. Sometimes when I'm speaking, I go, who has over 50% recurring revenue in your business right now? Hands go up. And I go, everybody whose hands are up, they sleep better than all the people whose hands are down right now because mm -hmm. you're worried about Where's my next client going to come from? Where's my next project going to come from? And so recurring revenue, number one. Also, when you sell the company, it will be more valuable because investors value recurring revenue because they can model it and they can predict it. So that's number one. The second one that's important. And so if you don't have recurring revenue, zero is, you know, 5% is better than zero, 10% is better than five and so forth. So it's all about incrementalism towards a model of recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. The software industry did this a few years ago used to be you would buy software and then you would have a maintenance cost over some time. They've changed the model. Software is a subscription now. You don't buy the software, you subscribe to it. So now they've changed that into a total recurring revenue model. Uh, Terminex, they do the you know spray for bugs at the house. Recurring revenue model. It, it's, it used to be that you'd only pay them when they showed up. Now you pay every month 
and they show up as they need to, to make sure you're under control. Mm-hmm. So their revenue is predictable. They know what they need to do to grow. So recurring revenue is number one, no matter what size you are and no matter how little you have. Um, so yeah, we, we saw that. I mean, I saw that I work in marketing. I remember when yeah. Adobe switched that, right? We used to buy yeah. Photoshop and it was like two, $300 or whatever, and you pay it. And now they want, you know, $1,500, whatever it is every month, right? To, to do that. And that's been a huge boon for their business. Totally. It, look at Microsoft. They've done the same thing. Used to buy the software, see in three, five, seven, 10 years, whenever I decide to upgrade, now they're moving everybody over to subscription model for exactly this reason. So, and, and you know, there actually are benefits to the customer too. Um, if I have to come up with a big whack and pile of capital to buy your item, that's kind of painful because I, I got to either get financing or I got to have it in the bank. Or, but what if what I paid you matched my revenue, right? It's sort of as I got money, I paid a little bit to you for your software that I use to generate the revenue. My income and your cost are matched up together. That's actually a better model for the customers too, as it turns out. So recurring revenue, number one. Um, number two is asset intensity. And, and this is your low asset intensity, but there are businesses that require a lot of assets to do the job. And they are painful businesses to run. I'll give you an example. We had a, a member that we worked with. He did steel distribution, very high caliber steel distribution into oil and gas. And it, it turned, and he held a lot of inventory, a lot of inventory. So it turned out every time he got a new client, let's say for $10 million, he needed $5 million of capital to buy all the inventory and fund the accounts receivable. Hmm. Well, his margin wasn't that high. So he had to go borrow money every time he got a new client. It was a really painful business. And then that would be the third margin. High margin is better. I know that's obvious, but there are a lot of businesses that they've got you know, 20, 15, 30% gross margins. It's just not enough to self-finance your growth. When you're in a growth mode, you need cash to do it. If the margin is too small, you can't finance the growth. It's exactly what happened to my guy who was doing steel. If his margin was 92%, he could have financed it out of the growth. It was 15%, so he had to go find money somewhere else. So for me, those are the three. Increase your recurring revenue, decrease your asset intensity, increase your margin. All of those are directionally correct moves you can make. So how do you, you can use a steel example or we can just another example, but asset intensity, right? I mean, if you're a trucking company, you got to have trucks, right? I mean, all of, you know, if you sell something, you to a certain extent need to have some inventory. What, what are the levers that companies can look at to reduce asset intensity? So let's, let's pick on trucking. It's a good example. And I'm actually on a board of a company in this space. Um, historically, the model was you own your trucks and you, um, sell loads, sell, you know, city pairs, and you get somebody to put enough stuff on there to make money on the trip. And hopefully you find somebody for the backhaul, which was always a problem, right? You've got to go sell it. What it's what the industry has moved to are operators who run the trucks and what they call non-asset based uh, uh, logistics providers. They don't own any trucks. They don't own any buildings. They lease them when needed. When they need trucks, they call up somebody who owns trucks and say, who operates trucks and say, Hey, I've got these hundred city pair combinations and all these loads I need moved. Can you take that piece of work? And they lay it off to that person and they make a margin on it. Now their margin is smaller, but they have no assets. So their ability to scale is massive, doesn't require capital. And the benefit is to the company that owns the asset, they're not the only one that has to sell the loads. I've got five, 10, 20, 30 companies selling me lo- selling loads on my truck. So I, it's almost like Uber, right? Mm-hmm. I get better utilization of my hard asset because I got so many people selling into my hard asset. 
So that's a better model when you, when either you got to decide I'm going to be an asset owner and I'm going to have lots of people putting loads onto it, a la Uber, or I'm going to be a non-asset base and I'll be a client acquisition, retention, design. There's a lot of intellectual property here and I'll offload all the high asset elements of the business. Gotcha. Do you find that that makes businesses more or less fragile, right? Because if you if you own a bunch of assets, yes, there's a lot of liability there, but then you know, especially what we saw with COVID just in time and all of this is suddenly people couldn't, you know, we had this perfectly optimized system that just kind of broke. Um, What do you find, like, is it make companies more fragile or less fragile? You know, when I talk to people about this strategically, you have to own one end of the transaction or the other. So in in the case of my trucking company, and and I'll talk about fragility in a minute, because I have a whole view on that. Um, Either I own the client, like I am super tight. I own the client. I do everything for them. And by the way, that client may need air freight. They may need trucking. They Mm -hmm. may need, you know, rapid package service. They may need a little boxing and picking and shipping and simple stuff. And I do all of that for them. So I have this customer locked down super tight. You can't walk in and just offer trucking and take that client away from me. No way, no how, right? So not necessarily fragile if I control the endpoint. On the other side, if I control the trucks and the city pairs, I can be very robust as well because you got to move in between those cities. I kind of dominate that space. You got to do business with me. Yeah, an, an interloper can interrupt it, but generally you got to own one side of the transaction or the other, fully own it. Otherwise you lose deal control and you are fragile. So these people that play in the middle and they don't have a, a real ownership of part of the deal, they, they are very fragile. Just, just tagging on COVID for a second. I think what happened there is we had long, skinny, perfectly optimized supply chains that were, did, did, did not, we had taken all the buffers out of them in the element to reduce costs, right? In the effort mm-hmm. to reduce costs. The minute there was a perturbation in the system, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic for two years, let's say, right? Right. <laughs> um, I had, there was no buffer in the system to absorb the weirdness that happened in that process. And so they broke. And so now what you're seeing is people move into more blended, a more expensive, but a blended supply chain model, which nearshore, offshore. So I've got some backup and some buffer built into my system. It's intrinsically more expensive, but it's more resilient. So the, the problem was we built an optimized, low cost, low resiliency supply chain model, and it, it, it broke the minute there was a, you know, a big old force applied to it. Yeah, got it. So then moving on to the margin, higher yeah. margin piece. Um, what are, and again, I know this industry specific, there's probably a million answers, but if there were a couple big levers that businesses generally look at to increase margins, what are they? Yeah, so I'll give you two and, and they're the kind of the obvious ones. Um, one is everybody that's listening to this right now should raise your prices 10% today. Before you go home to your family, raise your prices 10%, why? <laughs> Um, think about the leverage of a price, and notwithstanding the current inflationary environment. Okay, this is, I used to give this advice even in the non-inflationary environment. So maybe the answer is 20 now that there's inflation. Right. But um, imagine a company that's making 10% EBITDA profit, right? And they're trying to increase profit. If I could do a 10% price increase, and I'm going to lose a couple clients, but depending on how elastic the demand profile is, I may not lose too many. Let's say I yield eight points of the 10 my profit just went from 10 to 18 with one move, hmm. one price increase. I lost a couple of clients, but most of them stuck. My, my profit's up by 80% with one singular move. So price is the most powerful, powerful thing that you can go after. And, and you know, that's the obvious, that's the down the middle way of doing it. There are sneaky ways of putting price increases. Look at what the airlines have done. 
baggage fees, change fees. You know, I don't like the way your hair looks fees. I mean, they charge for everything, right? Yep, yep. Um, and, you know, are those real costs to them? No, they made it up so they could nibble us 50 more bucks because we already know we're going to Colorado or Tampa or wherever we're going. So mm-hmm. nibble is another way to effectively increase prices, but maybe not make it so obvious. The other one is, is margin. And this is really about driving cost. Um, and I, I think most people really underthink their supply chain side. Now, look at your professional services and it's all people. You're not going to go, hey, everybody got to reduce your salary by 10%. That's a great way to right. lose all your people. Right. But if there's a material or other elements in it, you, you need to go and negotiate those. And I think particularly when companies are doing well and growing, they get sloppy. They don't tighten down on these, some of these things operationally. And um, they only do it when things get tough and they go, oh my gosh, look at all this money we can save on all these things we never negotiated the, the purchase of, toilet paper and copiers and all this other stuff, computers and te- technical support. And Well, you should do that now. You should do that now. You should always keep your sort of supply chain tight on point. I don't mean be like, like a car company where you crank it down so nobody can make money, right. but intelligent, rational management of your supply chain is very appropriate in all cases. Those are the two big moves that we always recommend. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's awesome on the business model. So then shifting, if we can, let's run through all of these. So talent, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what do you look at for talent? I mean, you know, it's a big, big bucket there. Yeah. So you start with the gradation of talent, um, A's, B's, and C's. And, um, you know, just quick definition. Um, if, if a B came into your office and said, hey, Jim, I, I got another job, I'm leaving. You go, you know, is there something I could do to get you to stay? And you'd be willing to do a little something because, but an A is I can find that talent at that price in the market all day long. But this is a known commodity. So there's some value in keeping them, right? If an A player walks into your office and says, hey, I think I've got another job. You're like, what do I need to do? Do you need more money? Do you need a better office? You will do anything to stop an A player from leaving your organization. And when I say that to people, I can see their the thought process going to go, oh, wow. Sally's an A, Bob's a B, right? Because if Sally came into my office, I'd be, holy moly, we are screwed, right? C player comes into the office and says, hey, I'm leaving. We're all professional leaders. We go, I am so sorry to see you go. I really wish you good luck in your next thing. And inside you're going, awesome, opportunity to upgrade, right? Right, right, right. So that's the first thing is just understand that we've got A's, B's, and C's. We need lots of B's. We need a limited number of A's. But A's in certain roles, Tyler, are like, 10x performers. A top salesperson sells as much as the next five people down. A top programmer is, is 10 times better than an average programmer. So this idea of an A, and, and there's actually math around this. The, the math goes, the average A performer performs at 70% higher than average. They cost about 20% more. Hmm. So there's value in trying to have A players in your business. So that's sort of one. Just understand what you've got. And, and, the, and on the, within that, just like a manager of a baseball team, part of the job is to put the right people on the field, make sure you have high performers. But if I've got a low performer, we're going to demote them to, to minor league ball or get them off the team. And you, people look at the leader to do this, right? So if you're tolerating a low performer and you're like, well, I just don't want to do it or because it's hard. I get it. It's painful to get rid of people. Everybody in your organization is looking at you and you are expending personal political capital every day that t- that person is in your organization. And so it's your job to either coach them up or coach them out. That's your job. 
And if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job and everybody recognizes it and you're demarking your credibility as a leader every day you do it. So that on talent, it's about find A's, keep love the B's, get rid of the C's on a regular basis. I mean, that sounds simple. There's more to it in talent, but that's the big singular thought. Yeah. So when you're looking for A's, uh, Jim, you know, there's kind of, I guess, two options. One is develop and the other one is hire somebody who you know, or at least think is, is an A. What, when is it appropriate to, you know, try and bring someone up in the organization who you think can be an A versus like, Hey, we're going to go out and hire, you know, whatever the growth expert or the, you know, CFO or the person who we know can do the job. How do you balance those? Yeah. It, it, there's a couple of thoughts around this. You know, you, you need to also know who those sparky younger people are in your organization who are future leaders, future, you know, maybe future use, who knows? Mm-hmm. And, and I always spent a lot of time with my high pots, my high potential players. Too, so I knew who they were and I spent personal attention with them. Even if they were two or three levels below me in the organization, they knew that I knew who they were and I cared about them. And that's really important, actually. Mm-hmm. The, the, so that's A's. With regard to, and, and so you want to develop them as fast as they can possibly be developed and give them as much as you can. They should always feel like, the water's just a little deeper than I like it right now. And I got to swim hard to keep afloat, right? That's right where you want an A because that's maximum learning all the time and maximum development. Um, the problem is maybe twofold. Um, inorganic things like companies can grow faster than organic things like people. <laughs> so if I got a company going up 30% a year, humans don't grow 30% a year in capability normally, maybe a year, maybe two years. What about the third, the fourth, the fifth? The, like people just don't grow that fast. And so you have to manage their scope as the company grows so that you don't, they don't get out overrun by the company. But that's why I want to invest in development. Um, and sometimes, therefore, you got to go outside, right? The company grew fast enough. I, I just haven't been able to get somebody developed. I got to bring an outsider. There is risk in outsiders, cultural match, performance. They all look good on the resume. They came from a big, and the big disease we see here is people get dazzled by the resume, particularly entrepreneurs. They go, and and the minute I hear this line of thinking, Jim, you know, she went to MIT and and then went to Harvard and got an MBA and she worked for Goldman Sachs. She's going to be great here in my 50 person entrepreneurial company, right? Well, this person has never worked in a small company. They, who knows if they're going to perform? And so they get dazzled by the background and they hire the wrong person. That's the number one disease here. But I think broadly, it's a health thing of an organization. There is a balance of organic development of people into leadership roles. You want to do as much of that as you can. And then there's some bringing people from the outside because new ideas come from the outside too, right? We talked about it earlier. They'll come in and they'll go, why do you do it like this? My old company, we did it like this and solved this whole problem. And you go, son of a gun, great idea. Go do that, right? So a little bit is good. Um, I think it's unhealthy when I look at companies and all of the leadership positions have been taken by outsiders. Hmm. That means their talent development processes are really crappy. They, they just, they don't develop people fast enough to move them up into leadership roles. So I think it's a blend is important. Um, you know, if you want a healthy organization. Would you say then it's also unhealthy um, to have all leadership positions by insiders? Can be. Yeah. It can be. And I've seen sort of uh, incestuous, all insider group think. Um, you have to really work not to get in that mode if you've got all insiders in the leadership team. So it's, um, 
yeah, it can happen. That can be a very negative thing as well. Awesome. Cool. So then system or processes and systems, um, how are they different? First of all, well, I think more broadly about this. So there are three elements when I think about processes and systems. You know, one is your values. The second is your standard operating procedures, which is your human software, if you will. And the third is your IT, which is the movement of data, the management of data in your organization. So values are important because it tells people what to do when the rule book doesn't cover it. So I want you to make the same decision I would more or less even when this is an unknown situation. So customers are first, we're always ethical, speed is important. Like whatever your things are, I'll use that to make my decision. That's why you need value. So that is part of your operating system. SOPs are about how do the humans behave in defined situations. So, you know, McDonald's SOPs are like everything is defined. How you take out the garbage, how you repair the air conditioning, how you serve the fries everything defined because it's a highly constrained environment. Environments like you or I, or most of probably your listeners are on, they're unconstrained. And so you can define a lot of it, but you can't define all of it. Um, so values are important. And then the third is data movement and data access is really you know, critical. Let me, let me quickly tie this together. Uh, I checked into the um, Ritz-Carlton in, in actually in Michigan recently. I get in, the, they, I pull in my car, they open up my car, uh, the trunk, they take my bag out. The guy says, welcome to the Ritz-Carlton, Mr. Schlexer. We're glad to have you. I'm like, son of a gun, that's impressive. Why? Standard operating procedure told him to look at my bag tag, get my name, and greet me by name, which he did. Perfect, right? Technology comes into play. He had in his sleeve a microphone. So when he said, welcome to the Ritz-Carlton, Mr. Schlexer, he was talking to somebody. So I go in, I go to the front desk. The woman behind the desk goes, welcome back to the Ritz-Carlton, Mr. Schlexer. We're so glad you're here. We've, we noted you don't prefer feather pillows. So we've got a foam pillow being put in your room and we've gotten an apple instead of chocolate because we know you prefer that. I'm like, holy moly. So the SOP, he told her that I was the guy. She pulls me up on the date on the information system, notes my preferences, sends an order to housekeeping to fix the room the way I like it. Later, I was going to find the, the, the gym. And I was kind of lost. So I, I, there was a, somebody doing housekeeping. I said, hey, where is the gym? She goes, just a second. She puts away her cart. She walks me to the gym, hands me a towel and says, have a good workout. And goes back to her work. Hmm. That was values. There is no SOP that says that's how you treat a client. But Ritz-Carlton's values are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. So she goes, this guy's lost. What would a lady or gentleman do to serve a lady or gentleman? I'll escort him to the gym, which is what she did. So you can see their SOP, technology, and values all interrelating to generate a customer experience. So that's what I mean when I talk about processing and systems. Awesome. So then contrast that with systems, right? Um, how is that the same or different? How do those differ? Um, well, there, there's within that, there's the way we do things. Um, and, and, and the embodiment of the way we do things is in the IT and in the SOP. So when I talk about systems and you know, value engineering systems and eliminating non-value adding and improving customer experience, you want to look at that process that you're using to deliver value to a customer. One of the recommendations, and this goes from a Harvard Business Review article, staple yourself to a customer. So be a customer and walk through your horrible, convoluted, nasty process that you make your customers go through. And believe me, by the time you're done with it, like, okay, we're changing this, we're changing this, we're changing this. 
get rid of that. I don't know why they entered the data three times. So that's process, right? And then you go, okay, how do we capture and memorialize process so that we always do it that way? Then we go to SOP and we go to the data infrastructure that, that represents that. So process is how we do things. SOP and technology is about how we make it stick. Awesome. Jim, that's uh, it's like an MBA course right there. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. I guess before I do that, anything else you want to talk about on kind of those big four? You know, we covered business model, talent, processes, and systems fairly in depth, at least for a you know half hour conversation. Yeah. Um, so uh, real quick, I, I go back to the kink in the hose. Those three, what we call them hats, uh, architecting the business model, coaching the people, engineering the processes. Those are the three hats you wear to fix the kink in the hose, to find them. We either go into player mode or analyst mode. Analyst would be what the introverts like, you know, spreadsheets, analytics, reports, learning, trying to figure out what the heck is going on and where my kink in the hose really is. Player, interestingly enough, this is the, the leader that says, there's something going on in my call center. I'm going to go work the phones for five hours. Hmm. I'm going to be one of my call center employees. By the time I'm done, I'm going to know what's going wrong in my call center. That's going into player mode, right? You might also see player mode um, when a, a CEO goes in and they do sales. They go, hey, I'm going to just hop on a couple of sales calls with you and we're going to see customers, which has its own value. But while the CEO is doing that, they're doing meta work, which is, do I have the right price? Is my offer compelling enough for the customer to say yes? Is this the right salesperson to cover this territory? I wonder if there's a system I could put in place that would support them and the customer better than it supports them already. So they're, they're thinking about coaching, engineering, and business model while they're doing player mode. Once they figure out where to make the improvements, they go back into one of those three modes and they make the fixes. That's why this dynamic of find the, the kink, fix the kink is, is a constant. Yeah. One, what I see a lot with companies is they also want to hire outside analysts who don't do that. You know, They look up data or statistics. They're not in, you know, in the call center figuring out. And it's like, oh, well, you know, data says if we, you know, cut staff by 30%, we could save this much money, you know, but they don't have the context, right. That they actually need to make those decisions. Yep. hundred uh, percent true. And I think, you know, you use consultants almost defensively sometimes. Well, you know, Accenture said, this is what the answer is. So we're good. Well, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're not right. You know, so, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's going into analyst mode. That's using an outside analyst mode instead of doing the work yourself. And, you know, there are times where it makes sense. Sometimes I don't have the people. They don't understand the industry the way they need to. I really do need somebody who gets it to give me at least a couple of starter ideas. So they, they have their place, but you just don't want to over rely on them. Sure. So, Jim, you've also written a couple books, yeah. uh, probably more than a couple at this point. Um, what are some of your favorites or some that you might want to highlight for our audience? Well, the two that I wrote briefly are uh, great CEOs are lazy. And, and it talks about this uh, thick theory of constraints, the kink in the hose, the, the hats that a CEO wears. And it was really designed to help somebody become a great CEO, but frankly, it could be used broadly to just be a better leader. Um, and the other one, this is a fun one, um, is um, professional drinking, which is, <laughs> it's, it's it, who knew it was a job, right? Um, it, it's a combination of, um, I became a certified sommelier and, and business entertaining for decades and combining, you know, how, what do you do when they put the, the wine list in your hands? How much should you spend uh, depending on what restaurant you're in? What are some good wines to try cocktails? It goes through the whole thing and it's an easy read, 
but it's designed to make somebody comfortable in the entertaining business, entertaining area around wines and spirits. So that's a fun book that I wrote just for grins um, for books that I, I like. Um, do, 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 do. I'm about to read Ray Dalio's book. That looks like a good one. I just the prin- finished principles uh, or one of yeah, the, uh, the changing world order. Cause he has a couple now. world, world order, world order I, I, okay. principles I did before. Um, I just finished feels um, zero to one. That was an interesting book. Um, been reading some political books. I won't get into that um, for the moment. Yeah. Um, well, so I want to circle back if we can to your book. So great CEOs are lazy. I mean, we already talked about your framework, but what what's the premise? I mean, I think you can get a lot of it from the title, but what do you mean by lazy? Can you define the good lazy? Um, yeah. Well, you know, it came, Tyler, from, you know, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of CEOs in, in doing this CEO advisory work. And um, I could tell with a couple of questions if it was a good CEO or a bad CEO. And one of the questions was, how many hours a week are you working? And if they go, I'm working 80 hours a week, my answer is they're throwing time at the problem and they don't actually know where to apply their time to get them the best result. Hmm. So therefore, not a great CEO. The great CEOs go, you know, 50, 60, 55. I don't know. I'm thinking about it all the time, but that's kind of what I put in for hours. Why? Because they apply their, their, their work on the point of constraint, which is maximum use of time. And then they minimize, because everything else is relatively non-value added. They minimize it. They delegate it. They go, I'm not going to that meeting. They shrink it. And so, and I think, you know, I got an MBA, but I got to tell you that MBAs cause this problem. We are the ones that said, you've got stakeholders and you need to satisfy your stakeholders. You got the environment, your employees, the community, your shareholders. So they go, I'm going to peanut butter my time across all 10 of those stakeholders. But everybody knows the only way to get an interesting result is to apply massive force at one point. That's how I get a result. So peanut buttering is not a useful strategy. So that's, that, that's basically what the book talks about and that's why awesome. lazy is good. Yeah. When I first started my company, you know, I was living with a couple of guys and, and, and uh, one of my roommates said, you are, he called me the hardest working lazy person he'd ever met. And so I got a good laugh out of that, but I think it's kind of the same principle of like, where's the most leverage. Sorry, say again. I, I... Oh, I was saying when I, um, when I started my company, my roommate called me the hardest working lazy person he'd ever met. Um, the exact same principle. Um, so then the someone, yay. Uh, By the way, there's a great, there's a great Bill Gates quote. It's in my book. He goes, if I have a difficult thing to do, I want to give it to a lazy person because they'll find the best way to get it done. <laughs> I love it. So there's something um, to it. Yeah. So let's talk about entertaining, right? You've hosted a lot of parties, um, you know, a lot of business how is it different than your average, you know, get together cocktail hour sort of thing? Like, how do you get the most out of those business interactions? Um, not you came at it from the wine approach, but just in general, what are, what are you, when you go into a room or have people over to your house, what's, how do you approach it? Yeah, I think you have to understand the purpose of the get together. Um, and so, you know, I think about it in terms of depth of relationship, you know, if you think about, a level one relationship, it's casual, it's acquaintances. And, and I go to networking events. Hey, how you doing? How's, how you doing? You know, playing golf, you know, real surface level conversation. Um, you know, the le- next level down might be sort of business interaction. We're now digging into the issues around the business where we're actually talking about you and I working together at some level. And then even third might be more personal. And I think you got to assess what are you trying to accomplish in the interaction and how deep are we going? 
<laughs> I tend to go deep pretty quick, just the way I am. And, um, but some people stay up at level one all the time. Hey, how you doing? Hey, buddy, how you doing, buddy? I'm like, I just can't take those people, you know, personally. Yeah, yeah. So I'd rather let's get into how we're going to work together or just like really get to know each other. Because I find I used to joke, um, I ran a, a global organization and I said, global organizations are lubricated by beer. <laughs> Meaning right. if you and I had gone out and had a beer and got to know each other a bit, the next time I call you and say, hey, Tyler, I need some help on this thing. You're like, hey, no problem, Jim, got you covered. Like, let's, what do you need? So that relationship makes the business go easier. So I, I think there's a real merit in just building relationship in time together. It doesn't always have to be about business, but I don't want it up at level one. I want it at level three. Yeah. So for people who are more on the introvert side, a couple of just tactical tips, right? You have these people over, you want to really maybe one or two people get to know. I mean, is it just asking a lot of questions? Is it sharing? Like, how do you break through that first layer or two of ice to get that stronger relationship? Um, yeah. And it's harder for introverts. There's no doubt. And I'm, I'm sort of on the IE balance. So I got to push into the E to do it. I'm not naturally extroverted. A um, couple of things. One is find some things that you're comfortable disclosing about yourself <laughs> because there's a law of reciprocity that if I disclose, you'll disclose. So I begin, it sort of gets the wheel moving by, by saying, boy, I just did the stupidest thing that then I share how dumb this thing I did was <clears throat> you, I've now become vulnerable to you. And now we can go to another level, right? Yep. So I do that all the time. The other one is Barbara Walters wrote a book. It's an older book. And I use it all the time. If you want to, and it relates to Dale Carnegie, Dale Carnegie says, if you ask questions at the end of the conversation, somebody will say, what a great conversationalist he was, mm -hmm. right? And they just talked about themselves. So Barbara Walters talks about, and, and the mnemonic is, you got these little things tied to your fingers, books, travel, family, hobbies. Mm -hmm. So whenever I get stuck in a conversation, I go, hey, read any good books lately? Hey, have you done any traveling lately? Got any vacations planned? Uh, tell me about your family, right? Or what are your hobbies? I got four absolute go-to things that are a little more personal that open up a conversation when I'm talking to somebody. So I use it all the time. Uh, you know, I get like this, the conversation slows down. We don't quite know what to talk about. I go, okay, books, <laughs> number one, yeah, travel. Yeah. Number, I go right down the list, the Barbara Walters list. That's fantastic, Jim. So I want to shift gears a little bit now. And but this relates to the CEOs are lazy. So you're on a lot of boards. You have a lot of things you're juggling. I know we can maybe, if we have time to get into Envil Bank, I don't know if we will or not, but um, how do you manage you know, your CEO project, all the day-to-day the -day operations of that, plus all of these other board memberships? Like when you, you know, approach your day, your week, your month, like what are the things you're looking for? Um, and how do you manage all of that without going crazy, basically? Yeah. Well, let's be clear that a, a board, particularly a private board, is a part-time obligation. Right. So it's, it's not like a public board, which is a larger, still not full-time, but a larger obligation. And most of the interactions are scheduled. You know, we'll schedule the whole year of meetings out quarterly or every other month, whatever the, the cadence is. Um, then you'll need to read regular sort of monthly stuff that comes up. And then there's the occasional, hey, we got to get the board together to talk about a topic. You know, I'm, I seem to be able to manage all of that within my current responsibilities that I'm available not perfectly available, but largely available. Um, and I can chime in when I need to. And, and because for a living, what I do is I dive into somebody's business, I get deep really, really fast and kind of get to the key issue quickly. 
Well, that's what board members do. Hmm. So what I do for boards is kind of what I do for all my clients. Um, so I'm able to kind of get into the material fairly quickly and get to the key point. People that are like, I need all the data. I really need to wallow in it for a while to be able to pull out the key issues. They might struggle to be on a few boards. Um, for me, it works. Um, I don't think I want to be on any more boards than I am right I'm now, sure. to be honest. Um, but, um, but you know, that, that's how it works for me. You know, yeah. it's, so it's scheduled makes- and it's, inter- it's, inter- uh, it's only every so often. Yeah. And then what kind of makes a, a good board member, uh, especially board member executive relationship? Um, how do you make sure you're not overbearing, but also valuable? Like what are the things you're looking for in that relationship? Um, so we think about a board, a board as a team and each team member has different skill sets. So you're going to always want a financial expert. You're probably going to want a, a market expert, somebody who's expert at the market uh, a, bu- a general business person or two, just good strategic general business people. Um, and then, you know, depending on the, the core value creation processes of the company, you might somebody who's really deep in that. If it's a marketing company, I'd want a really genius marketing person on the board, for example, right? Sure. If they're uh, operational cost-driven, I would want somebody who's a hardcore operations person on the board, just because a board is there to do three things, help with strategy, Strategy created by management that's overseen and sort of checked by board. Uh, Risk, make sure you don't do anything that's going to blow the company up. So we're oversighting risk and talent. We make sure the talent is being developed at the right rate and the right so that we have future capacity to execute. That's it. That's all a board's supposed to do. And so to the extent they they step over those things, they're probably out, out of their lane a little bit and they need to get pulled back into their lane. And there it needs to be either the chairman or the CEO saying, hey, 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 you're overstepping, back it up a little bit. That's not the job of the board. Um, and, you know, and I've seen it where boards get really operationally involved and it's just ugly and inappropriate. Um, luckily, I probably don't have the time to do that. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't do it. <laughs> um, you got to worry about that retired executive with lots of time on his or her hands that's going to dig right. in deep. They may be, it may, may find it difficult to be a good board member and, you know, stay at the right level, you know, stay mm-hmm. at the board level and don't dig in. We've worked with a lot of startups and I see that also with uh, angel or like seed investors who uh, are retired or semi-retired and have a lot of time on their hands and want to yes. maybe get a little more involved than it's helpful. Um, on the talent piece, so are they just developing like the CEO or are they like, what do you, how do they impact the talent? Cause obviously you typically have, you know, uh, ex- executives in each department, marketing, HR operations that are going to ideally be bringing on their own talent. How does a board in- interact with that? So first rule of thumb is talent is owned by the company, not by the manager. Hmm. And so as an asset of the company, the board has an obligation to make sure it's being developed and cared for appropriately. So what does that mean? compensation is on point. They oversight the compensation strategy. They oversight the compensation for CXO level and at least look at next level down just to make sure it all makes sense. Um, I remember one board I was on where we had a couple of director level guys. They were making a fraction of what everybody else was making. I'm like, why is that? And it's kind of where they came from. I'm like, look, if we had to rehire those positions, we're paying 75% more money than you're paying them. Let's just go there now because, you know, so anyway, that's Keep something around, the board yeah. would be able to do. Uh, high pots, you want to have high pots exposed to the board as well occasionally. Succession candidates to the CEO exposed to the board occasionally. So, you know, when it's time for the CEO to go, they go, we know 
Sally and Bob and, you know, uh, Maria, because we've met them. We've spent time with them. We've seen presentations from them. We're comfortable with them. We got three great choices for CEO. Like, uh, so that, when I see talent, it's like they need to know who they are. They need some exposure to them. They need to be involved in compensation. They may be a little bit involved in their development pathway. You know, um, hey, uh, you're trying to improve her scope on uh, HR matters. I'll, I will mentor her uh, on HR matters to try to expand her scope. So there's places for boards to play out in, in talent. That's awesome, Jim. Um, other questions I should have asked that I didn't, we covered a lot of uh, real estate there. Um, no, this was great fun. Yeah, you, you touched a lot of bases. It was great. I appreciate it. And so for people, Jim, who want to find out more about you, about CEO Project, uh, best contact info places, where should they start? Um, you can find us on uh, Twitter, uh, uh, The CEO Project. Um, the CEO Project is our website as well. And those would be the two best places. Also on LinkedIn, if you want to look for the CEO project, you'll find us on LinkedIn. And we post a lot of our content and articles there if you're interested in reading them. Cool. Well, Jim, I really appreciate your time. I have a bunch of notes I got to go through and I'll probably re-listen to this and reprocess a lot of through it. It's just good stuff. So, Perfect. Well, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it, Tyler. 